I think from a common sense standpoint to think that we're exposing ourselves to these frequencies, these man-made EMFs uh, that are inducing voltages on our body and in our body and to think that's not going to do anything as far as long-term health effects, that's a little silly to me. We, we forget that we're, we're electrical beings and that's, that's a crucial part of maintaining optimal health is maintaining our electrical homeostasis. Who's doing these studies and who's funding the studies and what are they trying to accomplish with the studies? Who's interpreting the studies? There's a lot of factors there that you have to, you have to consider. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. All righty. How's everyone doing? Welcome back to Decentralized Radio. Today we got Rob back on the line. So this is part two, Grounded Athlete, part one, released, epic, one of the best podcasts we've ever done. So we're continuing the conversation because we had a lot more to cover. Robbie Pooh, Earth Poppy, how you doing? I'm all right, man. I'm super happy to be back with two of the coolest dudes doing podcasts. <laughs> is this the first? Is That's this right. the first part two we've had? I think it is. This is our first. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh yeah, for oh. sure. Yeah. This is our first. This is I well. I, I thought we had gotten into like the matrix and stuff from the last one, but maybe I just didn't remember correctly. So there was the some audio. technical difficulties yeah. <laughs> from my side, but I think it's a blessing in disguise because we kept the listeners are in suspense now with Ryan's amazing outro from the last <clears throat> episode. And we ended, yeah, kind of talking about EMFs. <laughs> I did so see that. That perfect. was really, really good. <laughs> yeah, was I just was winging it, it was on purpose. Yeah, there are so many things I pulled from that one too. Like, there's like so many like different topics I was able to turn into separate videos, and I'm still like I still have a bunch I still need to like put out. And there was a there was a ton of of stuff that we talked about there. So that was a that was a really good one. I enjoyed that one. Well, it's really fascinating, and I'm not even kidding. I'm like yesterday I talked to my dad for 30 minutes about like grounding. He's an electrical engineer, like an actual electrical engineer. Um, and then I'm messaging this guy on like Telegram as well. It's like there's not enough data or science out there to really have these conclusive definitive statements. And it's really fascinating to get on and talk with you. We just talked with, with Carrie B about, you know, the matrix. We're going to dive into that. Like talking through these things, I think is so fascinating because we're kind of on the frontier of, of science. We're, we're ahead of science pretty much. And where we left off was in this EMF umbrella effect space of, you know, body potential, Richard, um, Feynman and I'm curious maybe you could explain that a little bit and get us going here into why grounding can be you know more benefit or protective and beneficial for um, against EMFs yeah so uh, one of the one of the common assertions with with grounding is that you're protected against these uh, EMFs these electromagnetic fields these non-natural man-made electromagnetic fields which is uh, partially partially true. It's not entirely true. Um, there's a there's a part of those EMFs that grounding is is really good at redirecting, and that's the that's the electrical side of things. That's the electric fields. So grounding is really good at uh, at uh, redirecting those electric fields. The magnetic 
portion of that is a different story. That's um, that's very hard to shield against, and so grounding is not it's not effective for for those that aspect of of non natural EMFs, um, particularly the ones that we're we're concerned with um, these uh, extremely low frequency non-natural electromagnetic fields, radio frequencies, um, which can all have detrimental effects on the body. They can induce voltages on the body. Uh, and these are measurable too. But um, yeah, so the claim that, you know, they're, they're, they're protecting you against EMFs is, is partially true. It's, it's the electric side of things, the electric fields. The way I see it is yeah, it's it's protective against like electric fields, but then it's also like solving or helping reduce the burden from being exposed to it, right? Because you're getting right. that that free electron flow, which uh, non-native EMFs are are stealing via you know causing oxidative stress. Um, yes. In a short yes. short story there, mm-hmm. so it's it is complicated. You said this was like a challenging area to research and, yeah. <laughs> and write your book about, right? Yeah. This chapter was, uh, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty challenging to write because, um, <clears throat> I did, I did a lot of research on it to, to write this chapter. And, and if you go out there and you, you collect a lot of these articles that are, you know, made available on PubMed and all that, you, you won't find like a conclusive answer to it. There are research out researchers out there that say, just don't worry about it. They're, they're not strong enough to, to really have these, to create these physiological changes in the body. And then there's some researchers that are just like, we need to stay absolutely away from these. These are awful for you. They're going to, they're going to ruin your health. So it's, it was EMFs got, in general. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Okay. Well, non-natural, non-natural. Yeah. Yeah. Non-native, yeah. non-natural. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're always exposed to some sort of electromagnetic, fields um natural that are naturally occurring yeah but uh the ones we're concerned with are the ones that are man-made um but uh yeah it was it was really difficult to to write that chapter because of the um the lack of consensus in that particular area i think from a common sense standpoint to to think that we're exposing ourselves to these frequencies uh, these these man-made EMFs uh, that are inducing voltages on our body and in our body, and to think that's not going to do anything as far as long-term health effects, um, that's a little silly to me. Um, so that's how I try and approach it. But uh, from from a research standpoint, uh, yeah, that was that was a difficult t- chapter to to tackle. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for me, it's like too when 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 people always, I mean, I'll get comments all the time whenever I post anything about. EMF or share a video about EMF or uh, something about Wi-Fi. We did a we did an episode with Anthony Smith from EMF Safe, and we talked a lot about uh, well, we talked a lot about grounding, kind of at the end, but we also talked about Wi-Fi, how Wi-Fi is like a microwave, and it's also like Bluetooth because they're all two point four gigahertz and stuff like that. And in my mind, it's like even when you look at them in isolated studies, you got to remember that you're being bombarded by a lot of different mediums all at the same time if you have your cell phone on and your wi-fi on and you're wearing uh airpods and you also have to think about it in the fact that for most people with their wi-fi they leave it on 24 7 so to me it's always about duration and the amount of exposure because even exposure to good things in large enough amounts sometimes can be bad that doesn't go universally but like exercise like can is it can be a hormetic stress that can turn negative in like certain amounts 
Um, that's different for everybody. Obviously, that's like a nuanced thing as well. But I, I don't think they're really looking at the fact that we're surrounded by all of this radiation like constantly and that maybe a little bit of it doesn't do that much to you physiologically. But over time, it accumulates. And we've seen in the last, I don't know, like 75 or really 100 years that as we've accumulated more and more things that radiate more and more frequencies, we have more tech consistently over time that we have higher rates of disease. And really, that's predominantly one of the major things that has changed over the last you know, 100, 150 years is that we have the AC grid and all this stuff. And so to say that that doesn't have any part of the story in the rise of disease seems to be super naive, like to not even look at it at all. And I think, you know, inherently, maybe people in big tech probably know these things. I mean, you have warnings built into your iPhone here. If you go to certain settings, you can actually see like, not a black box warning per se, but it's like a warning saying like, hey, to reduce RF radiation, don't do this. Like it literally says it on your phone. I can find the setting. I, I created a screen recording of it. It's hilarious. <clears throat> and then now with like France um, banning iPhone 12 and also their, their regulations around uh, Wi-Fi and tech for kindergartners and pre-K, like the fact that other countries are talking about this, which they're usually the last people to talk about it anyways, but the fact that it's even being talked about at all anywhere is kind of alarming. And Tristan had a really good post the other day sharing about the, uh, I think it was like the, I can't remember what it was, but it was like the amount of radiation like allowed per it's country the, or it's something the like RF, that. It's the RF power density threshold limits by country. And yeah, they vary tremendously. So everything you just said, Ryan, I think is, is a great point, but you know, it's correlative. That's the problem with a lot of these research articles, uh, studies done on EMFs is they're epidemiological. So they're looking at population, seeing if they live near a transmission line or whatever, and, mm -hmm. you know, high EMF areas and then correlating stuff. So that's already a notch down in credibility. Then they're doing rodent, you know, studies a lot because it's hard to measure actual humans um, in direct um, EMF environments. <clears throat> so, and then a lot of the research is done or that was done is coming from like Russia and again, notch on, on credibility. But I would say, I don't know. I kind of disagree because I've just dove so deep into this, but at the same time, it's hard to sift through all this. And there's actually industry funded research as well that conflates things also. And people like Deborah Davis, like talk a lot about that. <clears throat> who's also an epidemiological researcher. So, but <clears throat> I found this guy, Dr. Henry Lai or Lee, L-A-I, and he composed a kind of like a collection of over 2,500 studies on, on EMFs and broke it down into like RF and ELF, extremely low frequency, so like 60 hertz electrical power, and <clears throat> basically said that like 90% of studies in both RF and <clears throat> ELF showed, you know, significant biological effects and he breaks it down further into like uh 84% showed genetic effects in studies since 1990 and 95% in gene expression. So I think it is conclusive, but I think the water has been muddied and I think the quality of the studies done are actually not like super high. But then getting into the grounding aspect, it's even more, you know, limited and and I was reading something by Gaetan, what's his name? Gaetan Chavile, which you probably read yeah. um, a lot of his stuff, Rob. And 
yeah, it seems really cool because, and what I kind of want to get into here is, is like the body voltage aspect of things because he's, you know, we're talking about EMFs are inducing this, this body voltage and, you know, from the electric field aspect, and then we can lower that by grounding because the umbrella effect is synchronizing the body voltage with the earth's potential. But then it gets confusing because you talk about people who mention like optimal body voltage levels, like someone like Clint Ober or Jack Cruz. I think they always talk about like 400 millivolts is like an optimal uh, voltage. Then we talked to Anthony Smith from EMF Safe, and he's talking, you know, the lower the voltage, the better. Like, and he has a body voltage kit that they sell, and I'm going to experiment with. And that when you're in this high EMF environment, it's going to be like, you know, above two volts, three volts. Like, it's going to be like very high instead of in the millivolt range. And then I'm like thinking about Doug Wallace and mitochondrial membrane potential, which is at like 100, 150 millivolts. So there's all these voltage levels out there, yeah. and it's very confusing. Uh, I can't imagine if you don't even know what like voltage means. Uh, so I'm curious to hear like your thoughts on this. Have you measured stuff, grounding, not grounding? Because I've taken some, you know, I've taken a multimeter and gone outside, and now I'm like, what does this data actually mean? And yeah. Yeah, I kind of want to talk about this because it's it's fascinating. I think there's a lot of numbers and information out there that's confusing. Yeah, um, that was a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, so really quick, I mean, back to what Ryan said was was talking about with with the EMFs. Um, I think a lot of that what what can be taken out of that is an as a neglect for the electrical side of health. Um, we, we forget that we're, we're electrical beings and that's, that's a crucial part of maintaining optimal health is maintaining our electrical homeostasis. Um, and what, what Tristan was saying about these, these studies and stuff, well, who's doing these studies and who's funding the studies and what are they trying to accomplish with the studies? Who's interpreting the studies? What are the, are they, are they misconstruing these, these studies to, you know, make them appear, uh, differently than, you know, what they're actually presenting uh what the what the data actually is actually saying um there's a there's a lot of factors there that you have to you have to consider um but um yeah so and as far as you know the the ideal body voltage i think it's going to change with with any with any article you read any researcher that does that does a lot of work with this um, I like the Socals out of, out of Poland. They've, they've done a lot of really, really cool research as far as grounding and its effect on physiological processes. Um, I think they, they, put, they put it around negative 200 millivolts. Um, and that's, that's recorded pretty frequently um, on the body and in, in, venous in venous blood. So within the body and externally. Um, and I would... I would I would say probably around that range would be would be your ideal your ideal body voltage around negative one hundred to negative two hundred millivolts, um, just below just below zero, not exactly zero, but uh, slightly negative. Um, but as as far as the ideal the ideal body voltage or just you know biological voltage in general, I think it's so contextual because the body has to maintain different gradients throughout the body for different processes to occur. So I think it's it's a very contextual subjective um um topic so i don't know about ideal though i don't know if there's an ideal body bowl so i'm sure there is but i just don't know it exactly hey friend 
Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Yeah, and I, I agree. I mean, I think that's the answer, of course. But it's it's just interesting that there's this kind of range and then yeah, what what exactly does that mean? So yeah. that's I'll have to look into the research. But I, I've seen that as well, like negative two hundred millivolts and yeah, that to me that makes sense. But then I guess going back to grounding and things, because you, you use a multimeter quite often. Like, yeah. what have you found just like measuring shoes, connection, different uh, surfaces? Well, it's, it's, what, what are you using that for? <laughs> uh, usually for sandals. Yeah, so yeah. I'm verifying, yeah, I'm verifying sandals uh, if they're actually, if they're, if they're grounding you. And then I've been doing my own testing with with different soling materials for, for other foot, footwear that I'm planning on putting out there. But um, around negative 100, around negative 100 millivolts is what usually what I, I'm at when I'm out grounded. Um, it's usually a little bit closer to zero when I'm in grounded footwear. So it's not as good as being in just direct contact with the earth barefoot. Um, but uh, you're still grounded. It might not be as good as being barefoot but I would still consider you being grounded um, to, if you're around that zero to negative, you know, negative zero to negative 100 millivolts. Um, but uh, barefoot is always best as far as, as far as grounding. And that's what I found measuring as well. But then it's like, that's a lower, well, sorry, that's a lower negative voltage. So technically absolute value wise, it's lower, it's still mm -hmm. negative. So technically it's higher. So this is where it gets confusing. But then yeah. we talk about um, inducing a voltage from EMFs say would, yeah. would create a higher absolute value uh, mm -hmm. body voltage. And then th that's bad. So how yeah. do you in interpret that? Right? Because people are asking me questions and all these things. And I'm like, yeah, it's a bit, you know, confusing here. Yeah. Um, and as far as, you know, what, so. And I don't know if there's like a clear cut answer. So I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah. One of the, uh, you know, one of the studies that's, that's cited quite a bit um, in, in a lot of this, this grounding research is uh, Roger Applewhite study, who mm -hmm. uh, essentially just measured, um, he measured the induced body voltage from um, the hotel room he was in. So, you know, the appliances that were around him, um, the, uh, 50, the 60 hertz alternating current, um, extremely low frequency electromagnetic uh, radiation, which induced um, a, a voltage on his body that was measurable. I don't remember the exact voltage it was, um, and I think that's that's dependent too on you know how close you are. You know the there's a lot of factors that go into the exact voltage that's going to be induced on your body. Um, but what essentially what he found is that uh, through these electrode patches, these grounding electrode patches, is that that induced body voltage dropped down to zero um, in, when, when he was grounded. And he measured that at, at three different points, uh, his thigh, his, his abdomen, and his, his chest. But, um, yeah, so if, if, you're, if you're in, you know, your house and, and you're surrounded by these, these appliances that are that are plugged in um, and there's current flowing, there's going to be an electromagnetic field present. 
um, electric fields are usually always present. It doesn't matter if the it doesn't matter if the electricity is, is flowing or not. As long as it's plugged in, um, you're going to be creating these electric fields that you're going to be exposed to. But um, through through a process called um, capacitive capacitive coupling, you know these appliances they they act as capacitors. Your body acts as a capacitor. So through that capacitive coupling, um, the voltage gets induced on your body, and um, that's that not only changes the the your exterior body voltage, but also what's going on on the inside um, inside of your body. So that's affecting physiological processes too. But um, yeah, there's there's a lot of complexities associated with you know what's exactly getting getting induced on your body. Um, but uh, yeah, so. no, yeah. I mean that's pretty interesting. I think one thing I've I, I still kind of wonder about um, is like we're, we're, we can kind of get into this. Um, like I'm in I'm sort of in the city. Um, it's like a giant valley. I'm not like directly downtown, but I'm surrounded by like the the grid and stuff. And one thing I wonder about is when you're grounding outside in a city, and in a lot of uh, like it, where my folks live. It's a little more modern, a little more new. So a lot of the power lines run under the ground. So when you ground over that, you ground into the grid a little bit. And can that be negative or vice versa? Like where I'm at here, the power line runs above and connects to the back of the house. Am I going to get anything residual from the power line above if I'm like directly under that? Um, it just makes me wonder, like, is it, am I getting a net negative effect grounding in the city in general? Versus like going up into the mountains and grounding there, which probably is more optimal anyways. But um, I'm just curious, like your thoughts on that. Is it still beneficial or is it better to try and negate that and just wear like rubble soles to not connect? Yeah. Um, I think that ties in a little bit to a conversation we had the last the last podcast uh, where we were talking about grounding and, you know, in the basement or in the, on, on cement and stuff like that. Did that, so did I, that make it into the episode? I yeah, can't remember. Yeah, we, we did talk about Okay, good. I thought bit. it did. Um, <clears throat> but uh, you guys had mentioned, uh, you know, dirty, dirty electricity and all that. Um, and I, I listened to a few, a few of your, your podcasts or one of your, po- your podcasts with the, with the last guy, as far as, you know, Wi-Fi and all that. And yeah, Anthony. Dirty yeah. electricity. So <clears throat> I haven't done too much, too much extensive research with dirty dirty electricity but um from from my understanding is it's it's when electrical current gets you know it gets ample so when it's essentially manipulated uh that's when dirty electricity occurs correct tristan yeah yeah it's uh you know power quality issue from nonlinear loads floating voltages from not being grounded yeah yeah higher higher static higher signal or lower signal noise ratio probably so is it like like rectification, amplification, all that when you're manipulating you're manipulating manipulating that load? That's when dirty electricity occurs. Is that sound yeah, right? Yeah, when it, when it's nonlinear in in yeah. fashion. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, gotcha. um, <clears throat> I think I think a lot of it comes down to, and <laughs> this is like I think this is an awful answer, but uh, checking checking with with a voltmeter. Um, and that's, you know, not always, <laughs> you're not always gonna be able to do that wherever you're at. But, uh, I think the, the multimeter is, is a super cheap, efficient way to know if, if you're grounded in, in certain instances, um, how close, how close you are to zero. Um, 
with that multimeter, how close you are to negative 100, negative 200 millivolts. I think you'll be okay. But um, again, <clears throat> I don't, I don't know. I don't know if dirty electricity is going to be uh, negating that. I, you know, I think if if your body voltage is is in that in that range that we had discussed earlier, I think you'll be okay. But um, you know, that's that's not that's not a definitive answer for for anyone. I just I don't know if dirty electricity is going to be to be affecting that at all. You're you're obviously better off being away from from these uh, these non-natural EMFs in cities, um, highly industrialized areas. But um, you can only you can only control so much. So yeah. That's true. I mean, sort of the rule of thumb I follow is just like most more than likely when you're grounding outside, it's going to be better than grounding inside, even in the basement, because one, you're getting natural sunlight if you're taking your shirt off or whatever, wearing short sleeves or whatever you're doing. And there's less, generally speaking, like plugged in, like you might be getting like residual Wi-Fi or something, or there might be a little bit of a wire above, but at least you're still connected to something. So I think it's still probably more beneficial than like where i'm sitting right now but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day it's like one of those things where it's like i don't know how much it's worth uh losing sleep over rather than like what anthony talked about in in one of our podcasts or what we talked about before sort of just like working on the fundamentals and then also working on your indoor environment more um like turning off the wi-fi at night or getting one of those devices from emf safe and kind of flipping that breaker off for your room or whatever but i'll I'll let tristan jump in because i know he was gonna say something yeah, I mean, it's just interesting to think about. I, and what you said, Rob, is is right. It's just like, yeah, if you're in a city, it's just going to be inherently worse for you. Like if you're grounding in a city, is it because of the underground cables right below your feet? Maybe. But those could be shielded. We don't even know. Um, actually, a lot of underground cables are shielded because, yeah. uh, you know, that'll save um, companies money. But at the same time, you're going to be exposed to way more non-native EMFs. So, it's a uh, again you're you're gaining electrons from the ground but then they're getting snatched right back up so it might just be like less of a positive effect and the same thing goes with yeah grounding into i guess your your outlet um so you can't i mean you can't you can't stress too much about these things because i think that's things start to get counterproductive yeah yeah you know when you're always stressing about all of these things all that pertain to your health that you you can't control then i think you're just gonna you're gonna end up you know in a bad in a bad mental state and that's going to affect your health too. You're gonna be stressing too much. Are you self-employed or a small business owner and are tired of paying hundreds of dollars a month to centralized health insurance companies for minimal coverage because there is no alternative? Well, I have good news for you. There is, and this podcast is brought to you by CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a more decentralized alternative to health insurance, and it uses community and crowdfunding to help its members pay for emergencies when they do happen. They incentivize and prioritize health and personal responsibility and share the thought that you should really only be using the centralized healthcare system when emergencies do happen. This is what I am on board with, and I have personally signed up for CrowdHealth since I left the corporate engineering world and the medical benefits that come with it. If you want to learn more, you can check out our episode with CEO and founder Andy Schoonover, or you can head over to joincrowdhealth.com and use code DRADIO, D-R-A-D-I-O, when you sign up to get a discounted rate of only $99 for the first three months. 
Centralized healthcare is one of the biggest issues in our society today, and I really love what CrowdHealth is doing to provide an alternative for people who care. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're kind of nerding out here because this is like what we love to do. But to be honest, grounding anywhere with bare feet on the earth is, is good. It's, yeah. it's great. And <clears throat> but, um, uh, that's that takeaway. Yeah. And, you know, we had started this with, with EMFs. Um, but, you know, I... I think the the takeaway from from the beginning of this of this conversation was that yeah I, they they are definitely going to they're going to affect your health it, it doesn't matter what you know what the research says from a common sense standpoint they're going to affect your health and if you you know I was talking about all the all the articles you can look up that are not conclusive what's 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 also very conclusive is that if you do any search on you know people that are constantly exposed to these non-natural EMFs that work in high electrical occupations there's an extremely high incidence of leukemia in those people um, on top of that you know magnetic fields as, as low as two milligauss are are known to affect biological fetuses so my pull my pull away from all that is that it it doesn't take a lot of, of that power to to create biological changes. Um, and I, I really hope that's that's something that's taken more seriously in, in the coming years because it's, you know, these these have the potential to really, really damage people's health. So hopefully we start to see, you know, some changes in, 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 the, in the near future as far as mitigating these um, these these frequencies on our bodies. Yeah, totally. And uh, I'm kind of shifting like full time almost into like researching EMFs and, and focusing on this. So there'll be a lot more to come trying to line up more guests talking about EMFs. And it's really fascinating. It's very complex. So at the end of the day, like Rob said, um, grounding can be helpful. Um, but at the end, you also need to consider duration of exposure and power, intensity, proximity, all these things. So mm-hmm. we will uh, surely be talking more about that. Yeah. Actually, so we were talking earlier, our podcast we did recording right before this, we spoke to uh, Carrie B. Wellness, uh, Carrie Bennett. And we talked a lot about water, the collagen matrix, and how this is basically like this super highway of sending like electronic signaling and messaging and all this stuff. I wanted to get your thoughts on the grounding component to this because it's sort of like that connection mm-hmm. that that that's made with grounding that makes this so special. I know you've written about this. So I'd love to sort of just give you the floor yeah. and sort of let you nerd out about, about why this matrix is so special and why it behooves us to take care of it mm-hmm. with some of these practices. Because like you said a little bit ago, we're electrical beings and this connection uh, within us is is so uh, special and almost nobody talks about it unless you're in our space maybe a few people talk about it but I think it's much more important that that people lean on to because uh, I think I think it's just as sexy as talking about food it's way cooler because you got the whole matrix and everything yeah. so I'd love to sort of give you the floor on that one and talk about how grounding affects this as we uptake lectures I know we talked about that a little bit but mm-hmm. we can talk about it a little more in depth maybe <clears throat> in this one yeah. Um, and I don't want to be, I don't know. I don't want to be too redundant with you guys. No, I mean, yeah. You guys have probably heard, you know, heard a lot of this already in your, in your last podcast, mm-hmm. but um, I can, I can talk a little bit about the, you know, the water side of things too, because yep. I, you know, I've been obsessed with water just as long as I've been obsessed with, with grounding. And so that, that holds a very, that holds a very dear place in, in my heart. 
But um, yeah, I, I wrote about this and uh, this is the, the first chapter of part two of my book. It's called The Big Three. So the big three, uh, as far as what grounding is doing from a mechanistic standpoint, um, one, it's increasing the density of negative charge in your body. Two, it's attenuating the oxidative stress uh, inflammation response. Number three is that it charges the water protein matrix battery. And that's where we kind of get where we get into the matrix. And so what's what's been popularized lately is um, this this easy water, this this fourth phase water that's that's been popularized by by Gerald Pollack. And Gerald Pollack has done a lot of really cool research um, in this area, but it's it's also important to realize that this this kind of research has been going on a long time before Gerald Pollack came along and it all dating back to like the 40s and, and the 50s um, with Albert St. Georgi. And what he, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Albert St. Georgi, but um, he, he was a Hungarian scientist who um, was uh, re- received the Nobel Prize for the synthesis of, of vitamin C. But uh, what another area that he was heavily uh, you know, uh, interested in was, was water and energy transfer in the body. And he was really one of the pioneers as far as quantum biology goes. Um, but what he realized is that the body needs faster mechanisms of energy transfer um, to explain um, how we're able to operate so so quickly, so efficiently, especially in 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 situations where where just split second um, decisions need to be made, movements need to be made, and so his his whole idea with with water um, is that it organizes itself next to these these macromolecules, particularly proteins to create this lattice-like structure. Um, and we can get the semiconductors and, and all that in a little bit, but essentially what this does is it, it creates a mechanism of really, really fast energy transfer throughout the body um, that's much faster than the nervous system, the circulatory system. Um, so a lot of this started with Albert St. Georgi, and even a- after that, uh, you have Emilio Giodis, um, and along with that, you have Maywan Ho, who I've, I've been obsessed with for a long time now. And then you have Gerald Pollack, um, along with Gilbert Ling. Gilbert Ling's, he's, he's in the mix. He's in the mix there. But um, yeah, so what the, this is the last chapter of, of part two in the book. It's called Earth and Matrix. So it's how grounding influences the matrix. And water is a big, a big part of that. Um, so... When I say the matrix, I'm referring to the extracellular matrix in the body. Um, that's connective tissues. That's so. What is what is extracellular matrix? So when you when you look at when you look at a tissue and you see cells, you you see you you don't really think about the area in between the cells. And that's a majority of what tissue is. It's the space in between cells. That's the extracellular matrix. So this is essentially this, um, this is what the cells are suspended in, is this, is this matrix. So what is this extracellular matrix? It's a, it's, a, it's a collection of cells, fibers, like collagen, and ground substance. It's uh, interesting. It's interestingly called ground substance, and it's very much related to grounding, I believe. Um, not because that's what they intended, but it's it's interesting that it's called that. 
but um, you have this extracellular matrix, which is physically connected to these integrin proteins, which traverse cell membranes. And that further connects into the cytoskeleton of the cell, which is essentially the scaffolding of the cell and kind of this highway. So this whole matrix is essentially this highway for energy transfer. And even further from the cytoskeleton, this cytoskeleton collect or connects into these link complexes, which goes into the nuclear envelope into the actual DNA itself. So this allows energy transfer uh, from the outside all the way into the DNA, from the DNA all the way to the outside. So it's bidirectional. Um, but this is essentially this, this superhighway of energy transfer in the body. And one of the ways that it's, it's charged up is through light, light and grounding. The light aspect of it is talked about a lot more than the grounding aspect of it. But grounding is a big, big part of that. So um, going what when the in, in the matrix, this is a very, this is a very uh, heavy, complex kind of topic. So I'm trying to I'm trying to break it down as, as much as I can. So the ground substance within the extracellular matrix this is um, this is composed of these um, glycoconjugates. So these glycosaminoglycans, these proteoglycans, these cell adhesive glycoproteins. So these glycosaminoglycans are they're these repeating chains of um, disaccharides. So they are heavily sulfated. So they trap a lot of water, and they're negatively charged. So what essentially what you have are these reservoirs throughout your entire body of these glycosaminoglycans and the trapped water, this negatively charged, these negatively charged areas, which essentially is this whole body redox system that can be depleted. And it could be depleted when you're not connected to the earth. So when you're connected to the earth, essentially these electron stores get saturated. And so when they're saturated, they can be used for a plethora of different purposes. One, energy production, ATP production. Um, and two is in immune response. So back to attenuating that oxidative stress response when needed, neutralizing free radicals when needed. Um, but um, yeah, and so this, this, easy, this easy water, what, what is it? Um, and again, you've, you've talked about this already, so I don't want to get too, too redundant here, but... Um, a big part of this this matrix is uh, protein, proteins. Um, this this these cytoskeletons, these the the nuclear the nucleoskeleton. These um, um, it's it's mostly protein. And when water comes into contact with this protein, it essentially orders itself next to that protein. And so, let's say you have you know your hydrophilic protein here. You have the water here. The water starts to organize itself right next to that hydrophilic surface on the protein. So here you have your structured water. Here, right outside that structured water, you have the bulk water. But right beyond that ordered water, you have this collection of hydronium ions, which is essentially H3O+. So that's what happens when water collects um, a hydrogen ion. So essentially what that does 
is you have this area, this easy water, this ordered water next to the hydrophilic surface of the protein, which is negatively charged. Right outside that, you have this collection of hydronium ions, which is positively charged. What do you have? You have a separation of charges. So this is essentially a body-wide battery that can be charged up for and used for whatever your body needs it for. Um, I've already stated a couple ones that are really, really important, ATV production, energy production, um, literally maintaining that gradient within the inner mitochondrial matrix to produce ATP. Because what does it need? It needs protons, protons. It needs electrons. Yeah. So essentially what you have is, is a battery. And how do we charge that battery up? Sunlight. Uh, what's really good at it? Near-infrared radiation. And then number three, grounding. Um, so grounding is, is a big, big part of that. And it, we didn't, I don't, I'm not sure if we talked about it the last time, but uh, I had mentioned inflammatory barricades. And we had talked about antioxidants, um, conducted antioxidants, chemical antioxidants. So let's say you have a pathogen in the body and this, your body walls off this, this area where there's acute inflammation, oxidative stress creates the inflammatory barricade, which is relatively impermeable to circulating antioxidants, um, anti-inflammatory molecules. But what this inflammatory barricade is, is essentially this walled off sack of connective tissue. So you think connective tissue, extracellular matrix. And so what this inflammatory barricade is in the body is it's essentially an extension of the matrix. And so an important aspect of this, um, this connective tissue, particularly collagen, which is the, um, the third, uh, makes up a third of the, the protein in your body. It's very, very abundant. It's semiconductive, particularly it's, it's a P-type semiconductor, which means it's got these holes in it that electrons can jump around. Um, that's essentially what a P-type semiconductor does. So electrons can semiconduct through this connective tissue so essentially you have this semiconductive protein ordered water that has electrons in it, free electrons, and then you have protons outside of that. So this is just one huge battery that's just distributed throughout your body. And this, and I believe this, this might be the the actual biophysical basis for the meridian system. So I believe, and there are a few others out there that believe that the meridian system is, is it's this low impedance pathway for electrical energy, not just electrical energy, but light, photons, um, sound, vibrations, all of this to travel through to create energy for the body, for um uh, energy production and, and immune function. So this this might be the the actual biophysical basis for that that uh, meridian system and um, how acupuncture how acupuncture works. But um, yeah, so these these inflammatory barricades that we we had talked about in the last podcast um, these can be resolved because they're an extension of the matrix and electrons can essentially semiconduct through these proteins and the ordered water that's that's in conjunction with that to get to these areas to to neutralize these these excessive reactive species but um yeah hopefully you know i i've broken that down enough because there's a, there's a lot 
in that. Um, but uh, it's it's a bio battery. It's a bio battery. It needs to be charged up. How does it get charged up? Light and grounding, earth and sun. So, bam. Yeah. Uh, that's. I mean, that's really it. Like, that's fantastic. Yeah. And. Yeah, it, it makes total sense when you think about the need for instantaneous communication in our biology, right? Like this needs to happen at the speed of light. Like biochemistry is, is not fast enough. And this is the foundation for everything. Mm-hmm. And then when you disrupt that via dysfunctional mitochondria, never going outside, never being connected, yeah, you're going to have a whole host of issues, um, you know, in any, any, any system if your communication pathway is disrupted, how are the right actions going to be executed? Just like that's how I think about it, right? So to me, I just think about our entire biology as giving your body the right input signals. And you're going to do that through exactly what you just said, light, connection to the earth, um, obviously, you know, eating real food that's local, seasonal. Because when you're when you're disrupting that, when you're creating this mismatch, you're giving your body the wrong signal, or you're disrupting its ability to communicate effectively, and then chaos or aka inflammation will ensue afterwards. So yeah, I think you did a fantastic job. We we talked you know about that with Carrie and yeah Mei Wen Ho and and Del Juice. How I say his name wrong every time. It's fascinating. <laughs> I don't think right? I'm saying it right either. <laughs> yeah, Carrie, Carrie said it right, and I was like I said it wrong five times after that. But you know it's it's fantastic, right? Because we have these we have electricity and you know proton current in our body. And that, mm-hmm. you know, that's what is the foundation for our biology. And yeah, if you tie it back to just a simple battery, which is what it is, then it makes, I think, a lot of a sense for, for people. And it's really simple. Get connected, get outside, charge your battery. The more you avoid doing that, the more you're going to be running on 40% and not yeah. feeling great. Yeah, just uh, getting out, getting out in nature. Um, and it's, you know... It's interesting, you guys know Hippocrates, right? Hippocrates is the father of medicine, and essentially what he said is that um, illness arises from small daily sins against nature. When enough of these sins accumulate, that's when that's when disease occurs. And it's it's ironic that that's the father of a father of, of medicine, and that's uh, with uh, you know that's a lot of. He's he's involved with the oath that uh, a lot of you know Western practitioners um, have uh, have to take you know when they when they start practicing medicine. So it's um, it's I think it's something. There's something to to learn from that. Something to be said about that. <laughs> Are you interested in 100% grass fed, grass finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches, based in Wyoming. Falls Family Ranches is raising high-quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. Totally. And it's like, like what you said, it's like, I think we view um, in, in conventional medicine, the body is just simply like a chemical machine. And it's not because if that were the case, we'd probably have more success with conventional medicine. And so we've removed the, it's really funny too, because like you explained something that is very complex, 
But on a, on an understanding level, I think it's very simple and very logical, right? It's be more connected with nature, like be outside, just do what other animals do. Watch your dog. Like I, my, uh, my girlfriend's cousin has two dogs. They love sitting out in the sun. When they're done, they'll go in the shade. But one thing I always notice now is like every animal but us is connected to the ground, always. And so for me, it's like, I know I've beaten a dead horse and then beaten another one with this thing. But people don't, I don't think people like to hear that because it's, it's so simple that it can't work. Yeah. And to me, I think a lot of people get that bottleneck of like, if I can't like spend a ton of money on something to fix something, um, then it can't work because there's like, what, what am I like? It, it can't be that easy. You know what I mean? But it, but it actually is. And I think that's what holds people back is like, they're doing all of this other stuff. That's really cool. And probably does have some like uh, benefit, like buying red lights and, and like all this fancy, like grounding gear and stuff. But like, you might as well just go out into the woods or into the prairie or into the mountains and like touch some dirt, maybe get into a stream, go to the beach and touch the water with bare feet. And they're like getting probably 10 times the amount of like beneficial effect than you would like spending loads of money on your supplement case or drawer uh, that probably 90% of us have had in this community in our own house. And so for me, it's, it always goes back to fundamentals and, and stuff like that. It's, it's too easy. It's too easy. It's too simple. Um, and it's something that's, you know, earth, it's high ubiquity in, in our lives. So usually when something is highly ubiquitous, you see it everywhere, we don't really think much about it. And uh, earth is just one of those things that uh, we tend to, to forget that is uh, very essential, very essential to our health. So what, what do you do, I guess? How often are you connecting? How often are you getting sun? One I will of say this. Silly questions I was going to say is people always ask, like, what's the dosage of, yeah, you yeah. know, grounding and light? And it's like, you know, we don't know the charge rate or discharge rate of, of our battery, but we know just the more you do it, the better you are. Yeah. 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 Go ahead, Ryan. Oh, I was just going to say, everyone bitches at me because I wear these. Yeah outside and they're like you're not you're you're just being a wimp because you're not touching the dirt which don't get me wrong like i kind of am sometimes yeah. but sometimes i just like it's easier to walk with those those around um yeah. but it was funny we went hiking with some friends the other day with Mikkel that you'll know tristan and everyone was wearing their ground and sandals on the hike i thought that was pretty cool yeah. but um but yeah no i'll send it to you again i just had to put that in there yeah i mean sometimes it's just not always practical to be barefoot everywhere and that's where grounded footwear is is really beneficial to have it's super convenient to have obviously barefoot's better but it's a nice convenience for sure um and you know on top of that there's surfaces aren't exactly conducive to health these days um you know and this is where i run into a lot of issues with the barefoot community because you know we're, we're in contact with surfaces that the, the, the human foot isn't meant to be in contact with. These are hard, flat surfaces like cement, uh, wooden floors, uh, what, what have you. That's, that's not what the human foot has evolved for. It's evolved for grass, soil, sand, rocks, what, what have you. But these hard, flat surfaces, they're not, they're not conducive to, to um, our biomechanics. So... I, and it's, it's a tricky situation because it's almost like, you know, we, 
we have we have to compensate for this thing that we have created, the synthetic thing that we have created, which are these hard hard flat surfaces. So um, I'm at a point where I think, it, yeah, it is. It's kind of necessary for us to have something on our feet when we're in contact with these surfaces, which is you know that sucks to say, but it just it is what it is. That's what we've created for ourselves. So. Yeah, I, I think you can get kind of disillusioned as, as being like a naturalist or whatever you want, barefoot maximalist. And I was like that for a bit. And then I was like running on the track and a little more. And I was like, I, I need shoes, with, you know, Pat, like this is my shins are on fire. Like this isn't so hard. Yeah. Um, and then also, you know, I've done like 25 mile hikes in barefoot um hikers like vivos or, or something or barefoot sneakers i ran a trail race you know ripping up and down a mountain with yeah. barefoot no support and i was like my feet i couldn't walk for for two days and it's like i have pretty strong feet and yeah. they're not strong enough so yeah. it is you know we got to remember we're just in a different world nowadays so and there's a balance to that too yeah because yeah. we have we have people that use way too much arch support and then they've completely eliminated like certain muscle function that's probably causing the arch issues in the first place or foot problems and so there's there's this balance of like you need to kind of do some of both do i think like i don't know i've just i've just noticed that with myself where it's like i definitely babied my feet way too much to where they had no durability and then i had to build that mm-hmm. build the callus up for walking on like just rocks and stuff every now and then because i just had such weak feet but yeah there's a balance mm-hmm. to that for sure in the modern world you have to be very, very strategic because a lot of people, you know, they go their whole lives, they're wearing arch supports, they're yeah. wearing these high cushion shoes and they go watch Barefoot Joe on YouTube and he's just like, go wear, you know, go wear these barefoot shoes, they're amazing for you. And people just jump right into them every single day and they're doing high impact into activities in them and it's just like they get injured, they get stress fractures, it's just like, well, what the fuck do you expect? Like your foot's been in cushion your whole life, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. Progressive overload is always a victor, you know, I, I get carried away sometimes, but, but it's interesting. So, you know, obviously you're a high functioning athlete too, you know, how do you balance that? And then how do you incorporate, yeah, what's, what's your routine like, you know, on a, on a daily basis? Cause I think you're really maximizing the potential of a high output battery through running fast as fuck. (laughs) Um, before I answer that, you did you did ask a question earlier, which is like how how often you know am I grounded? How long do they need to ground? Yeah, yeah, uh, tie it in. <clears throat> yeah, I think um, I, I'm grounded up to I would say 14, 14, 15 hours a day um, on like when I'm awake. Um, I would say up to probably 20 hours, 20, 20 hours a day that, that I'm, I'm grounded. That includes my, my sleep too. Um, <clears throat> so, cause I spend some time indoors and sometimes I don't always have my grounding mat. It's usually on my bed and I don't want to unplug it. It's all that. So, but, uh, yeah, I spend, I spend a, a lot of my day, my day grounded. Um, as far as the optimal duration, I think we answered this in the last, the last, uh, podcast too. But, um, if you think of it this way, Humans are meant to be grounded to the earth 24 7, 365. So, really, you're supposed to be grounded all day, every day. Um, but uh, if, you, if you do kind of um, a little averaging of all the research studies that have been done, which range from you know, anywhere from instantaneous to a full night of sleep, 
Um, I would say an hour a day, an hour a day at least. Um, but uh, if you can't get that, you know, really at the end of the day, something is better than nothing. You know, a few minutes, if you can, sp- if you can do that, if you can, if you can spend a couple minutes outside per day being grounded, you're going to see some positive changes in your life cumulatively. If you're doing that every day, um, you don't have to be spending hours and hours and hours outside. Um, and really, you don't have to do that anyway. You have grounding mats, you have grounding sheets, you have all these nice conveniences that you can utilize to to help you in your grounding journey that can be utilized. So um, something something is better than nothing. I don't have I don't have um, you know an ideal dosage, and part of that is you know what kind of state kind of state are you in? You in a you in a high inflammatory state? You in a you in a state of low um, inflammatory preparedness as, as coined by James Oshman, which essentially means your electron stores are not saturated. They're depleted. Um, that factors into it too. So, um, but, um, yeah, I've been, I've been quarter modeling for, for about 15, 15 years now. Um, and so and that's, that's how my grounding journey started. Uh, I was, I, I wanted to get better. I wanted to beat people. I wanted to be, you know, <laughs> a really, really good athlete and, and excel at my sport and injuries were occurring and all these, all, I wasn't recovering very well. And, you know, I feel like I did everything I could possibly do to be the best athlete that I could be. And I felt like something was missing. And then I found out about grounding and I started utilizing it. And I was just like, all these changes were happening. Um, my train, my training was so much better. My recovery is so much better. And, you know, from, from that point I was hooked, but, um, yeah, I, 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 I balance, um, running 400 meters. You know, I, I started out as a hundred meter running and then I ended up at the 400 because, uh, the hundred I'm fast, but you know, I just don't have the foot speed for the, for the hundred, but, uh, 400 is a good, is a good kind of right in between. You can be fast, but you need a little bit of endurance for it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I balance that with, with jujitsu and, and, and kickboxing. So it's, uh, I have to, I have to take care of my body, um, quite, quite good to, to be able to maintain this. So, yeah. And I already said it in the last podcast, cause I know we talked about my track history and stuff, which isn't like amazing by any means, but I hate the 400 always will hate the 400 long distance all the way. Um, I mean, maybe I just trained wrong too. Like I can, I, now that I know all these things, I feel like in retrospect that I just wasn't setting myself up for the 400 very well. But I, I was always like a minimum needed the 800 to like pick up speed and stuff. And so for me, I always like dreaded when my coach would put me in for the 400. I was just so angry because he would do it all the time. And it would pretty much derail the rest of my race day because I was just like, I would do so. I'm, I'm telling you, I was like, I was like dead last dude in the 400, like almost every time. I think he had a plan. I think he had a plan for you. I think if you, I think if you, he was, I think in his head, he was like, if I get him to run this this fast race that really kind of works on his foot speed, you know, he's going to have a lot more potential in these in these longer races. So I hope maybe, so. That maybe, makes me feel better. <laughs> you got to sprint to run faster miles. You know, you that's uh, yeah. that's what I realized. Um, are you? Do you have any goals for? You know, you run like seriously. I don't know what it's called, like semi pro or. Yeah. quite close to pro level <clears throat> times. Like what, yeah. what are your goals for, for this? And yeah. I yeah. was getting, uh, I was getting paid for a couple of years to compete around okay. the country. So I was traveling to Oregon, Texas, Florida, 
to compete in these meets and I would win, I would win money from it. Um, and sometimes you win a lot of money. Sometimes you don't win a lot of money. That's, that's track and field. It's not a very popular sport. It's hard to be successful in track because, you know, it's not a moneymaker. It's not something people are really kind of infatuated with something you see on the TV, but, um, it's, it's a very, it's a very pure sport in my mind because, you know, to, to sprint fast, so many things have to come together in harmony. And when you watch someone sprint full speed, it's a, it's a really good way to assess inefficiency and biomechanical flaws. Um, you, you see if they're, you know, they're overcompensating somewhere because, you know, really, really well-tuned sprinters <clears throat> overall, they, they're very, they're very harmonic they're very harmonic athletes. They they're able to to move their body through space so so efficiently and so gracefully, and and that that can leak into other other sports that they do. But really, I mean, sp- sprinting to me is, is is a very it's a very re- revealing revealing practice for for the human body. Um, but um, yeah, I I'm I'm a quarter miler. Um, I run. 466 uh, at the moment. Um, I would love to get in, you know, last year I had, I decided to stop running track. Um, so I just, I left the sport for um, almost a year and I was just, and then I started training with a few buddies of mine and I was just like, Oh, I'm still like, I'm still fast. <laughs> so I'm going to start like competing. I just see how it goes. And uh, I, I ran some meets last year and I was like, Oh, I'm still as fast as I was when I left. Um, which is nice because, you know, I'm at a point in my, in my athletic career where I don't need to do much to, to be where I was, uh, when I was training really seriously. So I'm back to training seriously again. <laughs> um, but, uh, I think if everything goes correctly as, as far as training and, and recovering correctly and, you know, mindset, mindset's a huge part of track. Um, I, I would love to shoot for 45s this year. Um, and eventually get some some European races under my belt. That'd be really really nice. Um, but really, I don't. I try not to set too lofty of goals for myself because I don't want to end up too disappointed with myself. I just kind of take it a week at a time, a month at a time. I program everything myself. I coach myself. I don't have any training partners. I mean, really, my only training partner is my electronic timing system, and that tells me how fast I'm running exactly. Um, but, um, yeah, track is a, is a very difficult sport. It's a very difficult sport to maintain, um, when you're, when you're by yourself, but, uh, I love it. Keeps me in great shape. Um, it keeps me, um, uh, from a metabolic standpoint, a furnace. <laughs> so I just burn through everything. Um, but it's, it's, it's cool, man. I, I love sprinting and, I don't know how much longer I'm going to do it, but as long as I'm competitive in it and I'm still running this fast, like I'm going to keep doing it. So what are like Olympic level <laughs> times, like 44 or like, yeah, so, just to qualify, I guess, <clears throat> U S Olympic team. Like, yeah, I'm just curious. U S is, uh, by the, far the, the best, most difficult, yeah. the most difficult team to make U S is so fast. And I take a lot of pride in that because like we're in a country where we're just producing so many fast runners um, and it's really, really cool. But at the same time, it sucks because it's so hard to make it to USA's. Um, but um, 
USA indoors. I think I've got, I've got a good, I've got a pretty good chance at making it to that this coming indoor season. Um, so that's that's one of the goals, and I think I'll achieve that. Um, I could have went last season, but um, I didn't have the time. Didn't have the time to go. I was making sandals and stuff. So. But um, yeah, so <clears throat> to place at an Olympic meet, you would need probably like a low forty four. Um, usually nothing above, above 45, but, um, to medal at the Olympics or to make the team. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, yeah, to medal, to make, to make like the U S Olympic team probably. It just depends. Every, every year is different. Like somebody will run, you know, maybe high 44, low 45 and win it one year. And, you know, another year somebody can run freaking 43 seconds. It just track is just all over the place as far as that goes. But, um, Dude, if I was like, if I was in another country, <clears throat> I could You'd probably make a team. I could probably make a team. <laughs> so it's kind of lame, but uh, yeah, it's it's that's is what it is. Um, there, and it kind of sucks too because we're such a fast country, but in Europe, they they like track so much more. There's so much more opportunity as far as clubs and stuff and getting involved with track that's just not available here. Um, there are some clubs, but um, yeah, there's just not a lot. A lot of opportunity for for track and field athletes here, um, especially as they start to get to get older and they don't have you know coaches or people to train with. So, you know, it's interesting just going back to recovery for a second because I can't remember who I heard that was talking about it, but he was talking about American football, mm-hmm. and he was talking about how he's noticed over the last so many decades uh, higher recurrent injury in athletes, and also the athletes that tend to have longevity come from the more Southern latitudes of the United States or have less injury rates. And that's due to their ability to recover and the UV that they have year round to allow recovery to be more abundant. And so Mm -hmm. it makes me think about how grounding in professional sport could be sort of like a, what's the right word? Like a, like a, uh, a backbone for, for recovery or maybe like injury, injury, um, uh, avoidance. Um, because I, I noticed like lots of people getting like tendon injuries, like reoccurring, like ankle sprains. Um, and they're not taking into consideration, like the, the, the mitochondrial health of that, of that tendon or that area of the body. And so it makes me wonder like how these practices could, could impact that. I'm sure for yourself, like you've already mentioned this earlier on and probably in the last podcast too, just like recovery is better, uh, healing's better, like performance is better. And I think it has to do with a lot of these modalities, just allowing you to make better like more efficient ATP and just having everything run, you know, smoothly like a well-oiled machine. And so it makes yeah. me just wonder in the professional world of sports as like in stadiums, there's so much more EMF there than there used to be. All the lights are like crazy. A lot of the stuff, performance stuff is in the late afternoon into the night. Um, and so it, it, it just makes me wonder about how they, they could be further optimized to produce better working athletes. That's why it's interesting too, to hear about like, how high performance is in track and field for, for like us Olympic stuff, because it makes me wonder like how these modalities um, could apply there. I'm sure lots of athletes actually use red light and I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure that they do. Um, But it's pretty neat um, because I think that could be some groundbreaking stuff. Yeah. And it's already, it's already utilized in in some sports, uh, particularly our, uh, our tour, our USA tour de France or our bicycle. I don't know. what, What do you call them? The bicyclers. Like cycling, the, yeah, cyclists. The cyclers, yeah, they already cyclists, that's, yeah, the cyclists. They're they're it's already pretty an, an integral part of of their training. So, um, 
but yeah, um, I, I forgot your question that you had asked earlier, uh, what you said with that, but it's, uh, it's already a, a pretty integral part of, of some programs. And, you know, I've, and since I've started doing what I'm doing, I've gotten a lot of messages from coaches that are just like, I have my athletes ground before, before we start our, our practice. And after we start our practice, like because of you, and I'm just like, yes, let's, let's go. That's so cool. Um, and you know, that's, uh, it makes me feel, feel really, really good. Um, but, uh, yeah, so <clears throat> huge, huge part of, of my longevity, I feel like as far as, as maintaining my athleticism and my speed. So. Yeah, that's, uh, that's badass. I think it's awesome to kind of incorporate more of these esoteric, you know, lifestyles into, yeah, an athletic setting because it's mm-hmm. you know, just something that could make you that much better of an athlete and, and people don't even realize it. And I do realize that, yeah, just being, you know, in athletics as a kid, you're inherently just getting way more sun, way more outdoors. I mean, you know, you're, you're grounded somewhat if you're just like falling on the ground and stuff like that, depending on your footwear. But yeah, Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting. And I look back on that as well as, and reflect, but man, you know, you think it's like, what could have been as an athlete if you knew what you knew now? Oh my gosh. All the time. Uh, Ryan. You you had said something um, that I wanted to that I wanted to kind of chime in on. Um, you had said something about injuries, injuries and stuff. Yeah. So what I was saying is like they were, and this is just like looking at correlative data, yeah. but they were noticing that athletes in higher latitude, like higher latitude professional football teams, had higher rates of injury and injury reoccurrence. Yeah. We're, and, we're also talking about African American athletes too. Yes, predominantly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mismatch. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But it, but it was really interesting because now it all sort of makes sense to me. Um, and uh, I can't remember, like, I, I'm hardly the football buff, like, honestly, but it, it was interesting because they were talking about, like, these specific teams have more ener- injuries than these teams in, like, uh, like the Dolphins, for example, have, like, less injuries than the Vikings or something mm-hmm. like that. And they were correlating that to their UV exposure throughout the year. Um, because it's obviously much colder, much darker, um, and more harsh winters. And so when you have that circadian mismatch, like Tristan was saying with your biology, um, it it was interesting to see that they would have more tendon issues. And it makes me wonder too, after that conversation with Carrie as well, and we were talking about water earlier, as you age, you have less intracellular water, your water goes down naturally. And so when I think about injuries and people as they get older, like my dad tore his ACL in his forties. It makes me wonder, like, during his healing process, it probably would have been better for him if he was red lighting or getting more sun and grounding during that period of time um, for that injury in specific, too. So it makes me wonder about not only just injury recovery or injury prevention, but um, as we age, you might need more to have the same effect if you didn't set yourself up when you were younger. So it's just it's just kind of an interesting hypothetical. <clears throat> um, so, I I think I was I was reading I was reading a paper the other day as like as far as like uh, injury incidents in athletes, and I think athletes are getting injured more often, and uh, I have my, my theory with that that uh, you know a lot of people will probably scream at me for is that I think a lot of that 
is started in the weight room. I think the weight room has been ruining a lot of athletes and creating a lot of injuries because <clears throat> these these movements that you're doing in the weight room, this, you know, sagittal plane, mono monoplane movements, they're not conducive to actual sport. Um, and so I think that leads to people getting injured more often because if you look back, you know, when people were doing strength training, just really simple stuff, or even if, you know, they weren't strength training at all, but they were still really, really good athletes, you know, they were running similar times to what we're running now. It's, and they weren't getting injured as much. Um, so I, I think what we're doing as far as like a, from a strength conditioning perspective in the weight room, it's, it's not conducive to actual, you know, athletic performance. And, you know, a lot of people would jump, jump down my throat for that. And this is something that I've experimented with too. I, I, I used to be a huge gym rat. I used to think, you know, all my athleticism is going to come from how much weight I could push in, in the weight room. It's not how it works. It doesn't transfer over that way. And me eliminating a lot of my weight room days, to, you know, once a week to, you know, so now I, I'm in the weight room twice a week, maybe max. And I used to go, you know, for four days a week, four days, maybe five days a week. And, you know, I was doing all of that correctly, giving myself enough time to recover, you know, uh, doing the right amount of reps, the, the right amount of weight percentages. And I, I noticed that the, the less time I spent in the weight room, the, the better I felt in my training, in my running. Um, and I just felt like an overall better athlete the less time I spent in the weight room. And I don't know if this is like just a me thing or if it's a lot of people thing, but um, that's definitely something I've noticed. And I think that's why a lot of athletes are getting injured more often these days. I 100% agree with that. I think there's no functionality in, in just those movements. So it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't translate at all. And I see that for me and I stopped going to the gym completely this summer. And all I do is, you know, pull-ups, push-ups, like sprints, running and yeah. hiking, obviously a bunch. And yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm a big skier. And every, every year I think skiing comes around and it's like, how can I be a better skier? And it's like, oh, yeah, you can squat more, you could run, you could bike. But in reality, like squatting more is not going to make you a better skier or make you less yeah. sore. Like you need to do something that emulates the sport to the best of your ability. So it might be like one legged hop jumps, like just going for explosion. Right. And it's probably mm -hmm. similar to track. So yeah. and yeah, if you have that over abundance of force from your you know, quads or whatever, from just squatting all the time. Yeah, you're creating so many imbalances, I feel like. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I think it's this weird gym bro culture that this is how you get healthier and it's all about aesthetics and mm -hmm. you yeah. know, these guys can't really do anything functional. And, you know, if you just like put some weight in a backpack and walked up a mountain or something and, you know, did that twice a week, you'd probably be better off. And yeah, what comes, you see like, you know, farmers are always like, you get this farmer strength. Because <laughs> they're just doing stuff like all day. They're not going to the gym. They're just like carrying heavy stuff and, you know, moving equipment and, and what have you. But going back to kind of what Ryan said about, yeah, maybe mismatch in, um, I guess, ethnicity and geography. Mm -hmm. One thing that's badass about you is you're literally designed to 
thrive in the environment that you live in because yeah. you know you're, you're native american yeah. Yeah. and i'm curious to hear more about this as kind of like the last segment here because sure. obviously i live in wyoming i live right next to reservation it's kind of sad in my opinion i work for a bison ranch i'm i'm really passionate about like bringing back what was here on the land and living that sort of lifestyle so yeah. for me how do you embody that and then what yeah what is it like like do you have family members that are also passionate about this or is the dynamic mm. kind of just different yeah. and how can we improve it yeah tatanka tatanka ranch uh buffalo buffalo and lakota tatanka um yeah i am i am in the area that my ancestors were ruling for a very long time um <clears throat> i in it's very recent in my evolutionary uh, history uh, that my ancestors were on horseback, you know, spearing buffalo, uh, hunting buffalo. <laughs> so uh, that that athleticism is is still pretty pretty recent in in my ancestry. But um, webcam down. Yeah, switch batteries. Got it. And there we that, go. That, that wasn't fast. as fast as my last one. All right, where did I cut out it? Hunting, but, hunting buffalo on horseback. Oh yeah, for sure. <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I grew up on a reservation in, in South Dakota, um, and I, I am. I have enough engine in me to be given a, a number by the U.S. government to signify that I belong to my tribe. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I was I was raised in a very um, earth centric culture, um, and you know a, a lot of so I I would watch I would watch my family, I would watch my mom, I'd watch my family members. Um, dance at ceremonies for days and days and days um, at uh, something called Sundance, which is a very, it's a very, um, it's a very important part of, of Lakota culture, Lakota ceremonies. And so I would watch them dance for, for days, um, a lot of times barefoot, sometimes in moccasins. But uh, I particularly watched my mom and they, they don't get a lot of breaks. They don't get a lot of breaks when they dance. And that's part of it. That's um, it's the whole thing is it's kind of giving your body to prayer. Um, and part of that is dancing and there's there's some suffering involved with that. So I would watch I would watch my mom dance for days and I would just I would be in awe watching her. I'd be like, how are you still dancing? How are you still dancing out there all this time? And, you know, looking back now, it's just like, well, they were grounded. They were grounded this whole time. Um they they were able to keep going and not get tired, and that connection to the earth is a, is a big part of that. And growing up, I, I was always told, you know, the earth is healing, and the earth can heal you if you stay close to it. Don't deviate far from it because that's when things start to happen. And you know, when you hear that as a kid, you're just like, you know, okay, uh, I, I I respected what my elders had told me, but. You know, even from a, a really young age, I was just always very curious. I wanted to know why exactly, why these things were were happening. And and then I, I found out about 
grounding. And it's, <clears throat> it was a very profound moment in my life when, you know, I, <clears throat> I had gone, I'd gone to school, studied physics and biology and went to, went to graduate school and all that. And I started to learn all of these things and, and then grounding comes along and I'm able to kind of put, put these two things together, my culture, the spirituality that I came from and the science. It's a very, it's a very, very cool thing when culture and spirituality can meet science and grounding is that point for me where it connects all of these different things, it connects my culture, it connects spirituality, it connects science and yeah, and that's that's why I'm so obsessed with it. That's why I love it so much because it's literally where I came from. It's the culture I grew up in. And now that I can attach something that's also very, very important to me, which is is science. I love science. I love physics. I love biology. These are these are a huge part of what I do now. And I can attach that to something very, very close to my heart, which is my culture. Um, these ceremonies, these, these ancestral teachings, these elder teachings, I can put these together and I, I can give that, I can, I can, I can shape it and I can shift it and I can mold it and I can give it to the world now in a nice package that people can, can do what they will, will with it. And hopefully it, it changes a lot of people's lives. And that's really, really what drives me. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's really powerful, right? Having that connection, having that virtue of nature and the earth being so fundamental in, in your life and the culture around you. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I think embodying that and continuing that tradition is the best way forward. And you're clearly changing a lot of people's lives and perspectives on the importance and value of these topics. So I commend you for that. I thank you for that. It's it's exciting to be in this kind of movement to drive this forward. And, you know, who knows where we'll be in 10, 20 years. But it's interesting to think how this evolves in the modern world when we have an uphill battle. And obviously, you know, modern convenience and technology, these things are not going to slow down anytime soon. But if we can take nature into consideration when we make these decisions as a society, you know, we, we might be a lot better off, but we might have to suffer collectively to realize that. And uh, that's unfortunate. But those who have an open mind are, are going to welcome and embrace this, I think. So, yeah, Rob, I appreciate I appreciate yeah. you sharing your, your knowledge. It's, it's yeah. really powerful. Yeah. yeah. Experience and nature teach harsh, but they teach best. Um, but uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you guys. Um, I'll have something for you guys in the near future. Um, some really, some really cool, some really cool shoots. So, uh, we'll, uh, hell yeah. Yeah. It'll be exciting. So amazing. Well, I think everyone knows where they can find you, but what the grounded athlete.com, the grounded athlete, Instagram, duh, D a grounded athlete on, on yeah. Twitter. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah right? And, uh, I'll, I'll be sharing this, but I don't know how many people it's going to get to because, um, I, I got um, I got in trouble on Instagram again, so oh, no. yeah, I posted a, a really funny meme, and Instagram didn't find it funny. So <laughs> yeah, many such cases. So, so, uh, but I'll I'll do my best to get this out to the people as as I always do. So 
Amazing. Well, thanks so much for coming on again, brother. We appreciate you, all your work, and thanks, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of Decentralized Radio. We'll see you next time. <laughs>